uh, there's a story told about a man who was concerned about his alcoholic friend. He wanted to show the damage the liquor was doing to his friend's body. So he got two glasses and he filled one glass with the strongest liquor possible and he filled the second glass with water. Then he put a worm in the glass with liquor and he put a worm in the glass with water. Quickly, the worm that was placed in the glass of liquor died, but the worm that was in the glass of water lived. The man asked his friend, do you get the point? And the, and the friend responded, yes, I get the point. The man asked his friend, well, what is the point? And the friend responded, the point is clear. If you drink a lot of booze, you won't have a lot of worms. <laughs> it's obvious that he did not get the point. He saw it and he heard it, but he didn't get it. I believe that's how many of us are in church. We see the word, we hear the word, but we don't really get it. I hope as we come together and as we study the scriptures, I pray as your pastor that we get understanding that ultimately leads to transformation. Uh, over the past few weeks, we've really been focusing on the Sermon on the Mount, and specifically, we're seeing how disciples are different, different in what we value, different in why we value, and different in who we value. Disciples are different. And as I was praying this week, I specifically began to pray that we don't simply see the point. I want us to get the point. I pray that we understand that the difference in discipleship is only because there's the Spirit of God at work in our life. It's the Spirit's work in our lives that makes things different. Uh, not me making up my mind to do different. Not me pulling myself up by my bootstraps. But the difference in discipleship is the Spirit being at work in our lives. On last week, we simply spoke about how there is a true reality that, that, that we all have people who we admire. We all have people we consider as models in our lives. And most of us, at one time or another, have attempted to copy who we admire. Uh, many boys uh, copy the way the great batter steps into the batter's box. Uh, many uh, girls or ladies imitate the wardrobe of women that they admire. Even young preachers copy their heroes from the pulpit. The problem is, in doing so, we usually don't know the real source of their power. Usually, we simply look at the outward expression, and we don't understand the internal power. Many times we admire people and we simply try to copycat uh, their visible characteristics. We repeat them over and over again and we get frustrated when we ultimately cannot do what they do. Uh, in reality, I will never be a great preacher by trying to preach with the same cadence as Billy Graham. Uh, you will not be a major league baseball player by simply chewing tobacco. Uh, you will not uh, become a supermodel by simply uh, changing uh, the nail polish on your fingers. Uh, one commentator says it this way, if you really reverence a great person, if you look up to them and rejoice in their good work, if you truly want to honor them, then you must catch this, identify, the, identify God's spirit working in their lives. To honor them, you must do more than imitate their outward actions. In reality, when you do that, you're insulting the person. Uh, when you try to do it by simply moving your arms or uh, shaping your sentences like them, but when you want to honor them, you must understand how the Spirit of God is working in them. In reality, we are insulting God, and we are insulting his work 
when we simply try to imitate outward actions. The Spirit's work in our lives leads to outward actions, but it begins with internal change. A true relationship with Jesus, catch this, is fueled by inward transformation. The, the discipleship that we're talking about must take place under the authority of the Holy Spirit's work. God wants to work in you to shape you. God has to work in you for you to follow him. And if we are in this position where we think that anything that we're talking about spiritually, loving our neighbor and forgiving those, and if we think that anything uh, like that can happen outside of the spirit working in my life, we are, we are fooling ourselves. We've got to get to this place in our life where we can accept that for me to experience the changes, for me to bear the fruit, for me to experience what God has for me, I desperately need God's spirit working in my life. There's a couple things that we see from the text. When we see the spirit working, we see a couple things. And the first thing we see is when God is working in my life, it leads me to resist something. It leads me to resist something. Verse 37 says, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. We must uh, say very quickly uh, as we begin our study that these are probably the most uh, misunderstood and misapplied verses in the Bible. Uh, one preacher says it this way. He says that these verses serve as the Magna Carta of American religion. Uh, some people who do not know a single verse in, the, verse in the Bible and don't even know that there's a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, they can quote this passage. Um, with, with any of the slightest disapproval, even the old King James just started coming out of Judge if not. <laughs> Americans love this verse because we've gotten to this place where we feel like to make a statement concerning right and wrong is a crime. We've gotten to this place in our lives where we think that God does not want us to speak the truth. People who quote this passage out of context don't realize in, in, in verse around 45, 46, Jesus uh, tells his disciples that they will be judged by their fruit. Uh, later on in Corinthians, uh, Paul speaks about how uh, believers will judge the world. Uh, Christians are exhorted or challenged uh, to speak uh, in terms of, of moral judgment. I, I think that we need to understand very quickly that Jesus is confronting uh, judgmental and condemning uh, positions. Jesus prohibits uh, censoriousness and judgmentalist. I want you to write this word down because I didn't know it until I, I was studying this week. Censoriousness. C-E-N-S-O-R-I-O-U-S-N-E-S-S. C-E-N-S-O-R-I-O-U-S-N-E-S-S. This means an inclination to look for and point out the faults of others. It is a person who looks to celebrate the defects in another person. We know that we are dealing with this issue when, catch this, I can detect the problems with someone else while ignoring the problems in myself. We know this is at work when we have the tendency to condemn others while we condone our own sin. 
Verse 36 says very clearly from last week, we've preached on it. Be merciful as your father is merciful. God is kind and God is willing to love those who are unlovable. And that, is, that should be our mindset as well. We should be imitators of God in terms of how we love and act and respond to other people. In the passage, when it says, do not judge, let me say, before I get to what it does mean, let me just say once again what it does not mean. I want you to be very clear. This does not mean that Jesus is prohibiting justice. I'll say it again. In the text, Jesus is not prohibiting us from being committed to justice. Jesus is not calling us to suspend our critical thinking minds. You and I, we need to know the difference between truth and error. We need to know the difference between fact and fiction. We need to know the difference between right and wrong. Jesus is not saying you need to turn a blind eye to sin. Jesus is not saying that you can never address an error in a person's life. Jesus is not saying that you cannot speak about uh, a good tree or a bad tree. Jesus is condemning censoriousness. This is self-righteousness. This is hypocritical judgmentalism. And this person is a person who avoids, catch this, self-examination by focusing on the faults of others. This person tries to deflect from their weaknesses by highlighting other people's weaknesses. People who have this being played out in their life uh, live life with an air of bitterness. This is not just in identifying faults. Catch this. This is in highlighting faults and highlighting their failures. This is a person who is looking for faults. Kind of like I look for jokes sometimes, but that's, that's a whole other conversation. Sometimes you can look for things instead of looking for something that God has called you to. In the text, this is a person who's looking to celebrate a failure versus looking to celebrate faithfulness. When we think about this passage, it should, catch this, challenge us with two things. When we are guilty of this, I'm guilty when I believe the worst about people. When I look for the worst in people, I'm being judgmental. And when I'm more critical of others than I am myself. Uh, as we apply the text, we've got to ask ourselves some questions, especially as parents. Parents, are we like this toward our children? Are we consistently tearing them down because of a fault? Are we building them up by identifying their faithfulness? What do, I, what do our kids hear us saying more? Do they hear us more speaking about their faults or their failures? Same thing with my spouse. With my spouse, does Avita hear me speaking more about her faults or does she hear me celebrating her failures, her faithfulness? Sorry. Even on my job, when I go to my job, am I simply looking to point out who's lazy, who's not doing what's right, or am I looking to celebrate and encourage people? So first, God working in my life leads me to resist something, but secondly, God working in my life leads me to respond with something. The B portion of 37 says, once again, forgive and you will be forgiven. Let me be clear. Jesus is not implying that a person become forgiven when they forgive. Jesus is not uh, teaching a performance gospel. Jesus is simply saying, as a believer, when you have been forgiven, you will forgive. The person who has been forgiven of much will forgive of much. 
But if we get to this place in our lives where we think that uh, we have done something uh, worthy of God's salvation, if we think that God uh, has, has picked us because we were special and unique, we are not willing to give uh, forgiveness and love to others. We are not in a position where we are willing to share the love with others. I have so much more to say on this point, but it's 12.04. Let me just say this quickly. Forgiveness and reconciliation are two different issues. Forgiveness says that I give up the right to retaliate. Forgiveness says I let you go of the debt. You wronged me, but I'm not going to take advantage of an opportunity to get you back. But reconciliation can only happen when repentance happens. I would tell you very clearly that you should always forgive because that is a commandment from Scripture. But reconciliation is always connected to repentance. And if a person is unwilling to repent, I would encourage you to not reconcile. And even after the person has repented, I would say that you still do not have an obligation to reconcile, but you always have an obligation to forgive. So first, God working in my life leads me to resist something. Secondly, God working in my life leads me to respond with something. In verse number 38 tells us, God working in my life leads me to receive something. Verse 38 says, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will it be put into your lap. For the measure, uh, for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, I know that anytime we get to passages like this, people want to check out. It's like, oh, my God, he's about to talk about money. He's, a talk, he's about to talk about the elephant in the room. When you look at verse 38, I don't want you to focus on the word give. I want you to focus on the word it. Don't focus on give. Focus on it. To understand this passage, we need to understand something about biblical theology. From, a, from biblical theology, we know that God is our source. Say it again. From Genesis to Revelation, we are constantly being communicated to that God is our source. That in life, we only have one source, that God is our source, but we have many resources. We have many channels and many vehicles where God chooses to bless us, but we only have one source. Now, the problem is, if you confuse your source, then you will be held hostage by resources. I'm going to say it again. In life, if you confuse your source, you will be held hostage by resources. If you confuse your source, you will worship the wrong thing. If you confuse your source, you will bow to the wrong thing. You will depend on the wrong thing. You will meditate on the wrong thing. You will measure the wrong thing. You got to get this right. We've got to have the right source. If you don't understand the principle between a source and a resource, think about a grocery store. Uh, the grocery store is a channel and a vehicle it is a resource. Uh, they don't grow the food. They don't uh, raise the hog. They don't raise the chickens. They don't milk the cow. It's simply a resource. And if you, uh, if they don't have what you want at one store, you can be like the settles and go to many different stores, right? It's not, it's not uh, unusual to find us at Publix, Walmart, Kroger, Fresh Market, and Trader Joe's. I'm, I'm kind of glad that uh, Earth Fair is closed. They took one off my list, right? <laughs> the, the grocery store 
It's just a vehicle. It's just a channel. Your job is not your source. It's a vehicle. It can't be worshipped. It's something that you cannot bow to. It's a channel where God chooses to use resources. The best thing about God being our source is that we know what we should worship and what we should not worship. The, the, the great thing about God being my source, I know what, what controls me. I know what, what owes my ultimate allegiance. My job does not have my ultimate allegiance because my job is not my source. My job is simply a resource. Where I live is not my source. What I drive is not my source. My title is not my source. My degree is not my source. What I'm pursuing in education is not my source. Ultimately, God is not, God is only my source. And if God is not your source, you will be held hostage by your resources. I'm not afraid to be bold because I know my source. I'm not afraid to make hard decisions because I know my source. I'm not, hard, I'm, not, I'm not confused about what my allegiance is because I know my source. In life, we must know our source. And as a disciple, as a person who's following Jesus, yes, we have a different Savior. Yes, we have a different sovereign. But yes, we also have a different source. So before we read verse 38, we got to remember, ultimately, that God is our source. The passage says... Give, and it will be given to you. The source, the one who meets our needs, the one who owns it all, the one who is in control says, in my economy, this is how it works. The one who's in control says, if you want to give, if you want to get something, you got to first give something. In God's economy, he says, if you need it, you must first give it. God says, whatever you need, you must first give it. Everybody wants to get something from God. But well, we have trouble giving things to God. I want you to go with me quickly to, to Genesis 1. This principle is all throughout scriptures. This is the principle of sowing and reaping. Genesis chapter number 1, verse 12 simply says, The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is, is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it is good. But you catch this principle of a seed. God built in seeds what they would one day produce. They can only replicate after their own kind. You can't plant a watermelon and get an orange. You can't plant an apple and get a pear. So the way God created life, he created a seed. And in order to replicate the seed, you've got to be willing to plant the seed. You've got to be willing to sow the seed. One of the greatest things about, uh, about planting is you have to put it in the ground. And the ground reminds us that God is the source that brings it back to us. When the pastor says, give and it, be, it will be given to you, give refers to the thing that you gave. If you have a need, the scriptures are teaching us that we must first sow the seed. Now, I want to say this very quickly. Uh, there is a, there is a, a story told about a farmer, and this farmer was a man of faith. He prayed about the ground. He prepared the land. He tilled the ground. He watered the land. But when it was time to plant the seed, he said, I'm going to hold on to the seed because I don't want to plant the seed. How silly would he be to expect anything back if he was not willing to plant the seed? In life, in the life of faith, God has ordained the seed to go into the ground so that we always know the source. 
No farmer eats everything they produce, but the future is tied to what is planted. We see this principle of the seed all throughout the scriptures. If you go back to first, if you go back to uh, first Kings 17, uh, you have the, the widow at Zarephath. Uh, she is down to her last. She's about to die. She cries out to God. She says, Lord, we need something to eat. What does God tell her? He says, feed the prophet. Lord, I need something to eat. Feed somebody else. Lord, what I'm lacking, I need you to give me more. And God says, I want you to give what you need. And in her obedience, God does a miracle with her seed. Same thing happens with Hannah. Hannah cannot have a baby. Hannah is barren. She is struggling. She prays to the Lord, Lord, I want to give this baby back to you. And then God gives her the baby. This principle is found even in the New Testament. You think about Jesus feeding the 5,000. There are 5,000 men who need to eat. There's no, there's no counting how many women and children are there. Uh, the disciples say, Jesus, you need to send these folks away. We have nothing to feed them. Jesus says, bring me what you got. Jesus takes uh, what I call that little sack lunch, and he takes it, he blesses it, and he breaks it. When the little boy puts the right thing in his hands, he, Jesus takes the seed, and he blesses their need. The issue is we've got to be willing to sow the seed. We've got to be willing to get to our place where we understand that God expects us to give what we need. I want you to hear me clearly. A lot of times we don't receive from God because we don't trust God. A lot of times we don't receive from God because we try to hold on to things. Now, I want you to hear me very clearly this morning. I am not talking about you getting whatever you want from God. This is not the prosperity gospel. This is not uh, you getting whatever you think that you are supposed to have. This is about being connected to the vision and the mission of God. This is about the glory of God. This is about the plan of God. Do not misquote me and hear me say and if I have a need, then I need to just give more money to the church. If I have this Bentley on my vision wall, I need to give more to the church. If I have this house I want to get, if I just sold more into the church, then I'm going to get it. If you're thinking that, go with me quickly to James 2. I mean, James 4, verses 2 through 3 simply say, You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Catch this. This is the, the killer of the prosperity gospel. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We are not talking about you getting something that you are just passionate about. We are talking about you getting something that will be connected to the purposes of God. I want you to hear me clearly. I'm saying that when we have a legitimate need, God asked me to sow a seed. Because when you give it, you are trusting God with it. It could be applied in a lot of different areas. This is not just a financial principle. If you want God to give you grace, then you should give it. If you want grace in this area of your life, you need to give it in that area of your life. If you need the Lord, if you desire the Lord to give you good friendships, you need to give it to other people. If you desire love in your life, you need to give it to other people. Like, whatever it is, it, 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 it is a reminder that you need to give it before you receive it. This principle is not just limited um, to, to people. This, 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 uh, this principle is even connected to every aspect of our lives. When God is calling us to, to receive something, God says you've got to first give it. Uh, I was so thankful 
uh, last night I was preparing for my sermon. I was like, Lord, how do I illustrate this and make it make sense? I knew all week we were, I was praying about um, talking to you guys about serving more, talking about two service, talking about us making a greater impact with Christ. Then my sister Thea called me. She said, hey, T, I know your daughter's not a, not a Girl Scout this year, but can you, work, can you work a cookie booth for me? And I was like, sure, no problem. And as I was preparing last night, I was like, that's the principle. How can I ask y'all to, to serve more at church and somebody asks me to serve and I don't serve? You guys know I'm a full-time Christian minister. I work for FCA. I have to raise money for my job. And we also have other members of our congregation who are full-time Christian ministers. Uh, we have Ashley who works for uh, AIA. We have Ashley uh, Reynolds who works for FCA. We have the Lashbrooks who work for the Navigators. They ask me for money, and I support them with money because I'm not going to ask the Lord to give me something and not be willing to sow it. The it that I want to get from God is the it I'm willing to give to God. And a lot of times we don't receive from God because we are not willing to give what the Lord is asking us to give. Verse 38 says, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, uh, running over, it will be put into your lap. Uh, this is, to, to really understand this passage, we got to think about uh, agricultural culture and not just the industrial culture. Whenever they were to go to the market, they were to go and they were to get grain or rice or they were to get uh, different produce and they would put it in a pot. They would put it in a measuring pot and they would, they would, they would fill it three-fourths full first. And then they would shake it to make sure that there were no holes. They would shake it to make sure that all the spaces were full. Then someone would get on top of it and they would press it down. They would make more room. They would press it down. And after they pressed it down, they would add some more to the top and it would be running over. The passage is communicating to us, when we give to God, God will shake it, press it down, and allow it to run over. The principle is God always gives us more than we give to God. To, the, to hear this very clearly, there was a I actually listened to a sermon this week because I wanted to make sure I was correct in my interpretation of this passage. And uh, the pastor gave a, um, gave a, a testimony from one of his members who came up uh, after one of the services to talk about the principle. Um, actually, it was a female in this church, and the female said, Pastor, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really struggling because I want to know how to apply this passage. And, and my it is not a car. My it is not money. My it is I want more intimacy with God. Like, my it is, I want to be closer to God. How do I get it? And the pastor responded, if you want to get it, you need to help somebody get it. You need to find somebody in your life who desires a deeper relationship with God, and you need to help them get it. And in helping them get it, that person ultimately received it. And in receiving it, catch this, they received more and they gave to the other person. The Bible says, press down, well, shaking together, press down, running over um, by the standard of your measure, it will be given unto you. Go with me quickly to Philippians 4.19. It's a verse that we love in the church. It's a verse that is, it's, it's one of those verses that if I was in a different context with an organ, this would be the verse I would close with. Philippians 4.19 says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. 
My God shall supply all your needs. We love verse 19. We want verse 19. But I want you to go with me quickly to verse 16. Verse 16 says, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I receive full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Before verse 19 happened, they gave it. Before they had their needs met, they were willing to meet the needs of another person. Before they were willing to receive the blessing, they were willing to bless somebody else. He says, you helped my needs, and because you were willing to help my needs, you sowed a seed, and God is going to meet your needs. I want to say this very quickly. A lot of times we don't receive things from God because we're not willing to give those things to God. We're not willing to sow time in prayer. We're not willing to sow time in God's word. We're not willing to sow time in fellowship and worship. And we get frustrated with God because we want God to give us more, but we want, we want to only give a little. We want the more from God. We want the bigger blessing from God, but we want God to bless us based upon our little. I've used this illustration before. I think it's kind of funny, but it's true. Uh, there was a, a little boy who saw this huge jar of candy, and uh, the person who owned the jar of candy, said, you know what? Go ahead, stick your hand in there, get you some candy. The little boy said, no. The person said, well, do you not like this kind of candy? Do you, do you want a different kind of candy? The little boy said, no, this is my favorite kind of candy. The person said, well, go ahead and stick your hand in there. The little boy said, no. The person said, well, what's wrong? The little boy said, I want you to stick your hand in because your hand is bigger. <laughs> the, the little boy understood the principle that the scripture is communicating that the, other, the person had a bigger measure in their hand. And in our life, if we want to receive things from the Lord uh, from a bountiful perspective, we got to give bountifully. Now, just so we are protected to make sure that this is in context, we need to understand that this is not just in one part of the Scripture. This is all throughout the Scriptures. If you were to go back to Deuteronomy 24, 19, uh, God tells the people, I want you to read this this week, leave the edges of your field for the poor and the orphans and the aliens. God says, this is your field. You've tilled the ground. You've done the work. But I, he says, I want you to leave it for those who need it. God says, I'm going to bless the seed, but I want you to be a blessing to other people. The blessing is not just what God does to you, but the blessing is what God wants to do through you. This is why it is more blessed to give than receive because God wants to know that he can flow through you. He doesn't mind giving to you when God knows he will be able to give through you. A lot of times we don't allow ourselves to be given to because we don't allow things to flow through us. We don't allow ourselves to be a conduit of blessings where other people can experience it. And a lot of times we want to be generous. We want to be known as, 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 as good, godly people, but we are not willing to live out the principle for other people. We want people to check on us and pray for us and serve us, but we are not willing to check on people and serve people and pray people. The it that you want to receive is the it that God is calling you to give. That's something that we all have got to commit to. And if we are not willing to commit to that, we will not be willing to receive that. Uh, I want to close with this story, and I'm done. Uh, there's a true story about a man who was stranded in the desert. Uh, he was in over 120-degree heat. He was tired. 
He was worn out. He was on the verge of death. And he saw a little shack in the distance. And he thought to himself, man, maybe I can receive some cover. When he got into the shack, he realized that there was a pump in the shack connected to a water well. The man thought to himself, oh, my goodness, how wonderful is this? Now I can get some water. Above the pump was a shelf, and on the shelf was a glass of water. And underneath the shelf, and underneath uh, the shelf was a, a description that says, use the water to prime the pump. There was a glass of water there, but the sign says, use the water to prime the pump so that the pump can give you what you need. The man was faced with a dilemma. He had to decide between whether or not he was going to drink the glass or follow the instructions. That's where a lot of us are in our life. We've got to make a decision. Will I do what's immediate? Will I do what I can see? Will I can do what I can feel? Or will I allow my faith to propel me? Do I drink or do I use the water to prime the pump? Thankfully, the man uses the water to prime the pump. He trusts, he trusts the instructions that were written out for him. He follows the instruction. He does what it says he was supposed to do. He decided to go with faith. And in doing so, the water began to gush. And he filled up all the containers. He filled up everything that he was able to drink until he was rescued. But catch this. Because he was obedient to the Lord, he was able to put the glass back on the shelf. So that the next person who wanted to receive some water would have water ready for the pump. That's how God has called us to give. I don't, I don't want to leave, I don't want to leave the glass empty because I'm just worried about myself. I don't want to live in such a way where I'm just concerned about uh, quenching my immediate needs, but I want to live in such a way where I see that if I do things God's way, there'll be more than enough for me, but also those who follow me. Chris, you can come on back up. We're done now. There are two points of application, and we're done this morning. Two very simple things that we need to say. Number one, we need God to work in our lives. Like everything that we're talking about, everything that we share from this pulpit is impossible without God. So forgive me as your pastor if I have ever gotten up here in this pulpit and made you think that this was about you. Forgive me if I have gotten to a place in my sermons or in our Bible studies where I led you to believe that this is just about more effort on your part. I need, not you. I need God to work in my life. I need the Lord to help me, to mold me, to shape me, and to transform me. And everything that we talk about is impossible if I'm unwilling to submit and surrender myself to the Lord. So first, we need God to work in our lives. But secondly, we need God to work through our lives. The great principle about uh, giving and receiving is I don't know where I am in that equation. I don't know where I am in God's economy. Sometimes it's the Lord calling me to meet the needs of others. And other times it's God calling others to meet my needs. Whether I'm meeting needs or having my needs met, I need the Lord to work through me. And I just need to be consistent 
and trusting the principle because ultimately, I don't know how God wants to work. 